Welcome to episode 11 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. Addiction is a solution to a problem. You know, often many people we see, you know, have started drinking or using drugs or gambling to deal with something else in their life. Hi, I'm Rowan, and this is part one of a two-part segment with Professor Dan Lubman about addictions. In this first episode, we talk about drug, alcohol, and gambling addictions, and in the second, we speak about social media addictions specifically. Professor Dan Lubman is a psychiatrist and addiction medicine expert. He's the director of a non-for-profit organization called Turning Point. He's the director of the Monash Addiction Research Center and a professor of psychiatry focusing on addiction studies and services at Monash University. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. If you'd like to ask Professor Lubman a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. Okay, let's dive in. By and, by and large, over 50% of calls to our alcohol and drug lines for alcohol. You know, alcohol is our biggest drug problem in this country. Um, we don't often hear about that because because it's so legal, because it's so sort of culturally part you know part of you know Australian life, and because um, we don't really want to focus on the reality that alcohol is one of the most harmful drugs that we we have in in so many different ways. So we don't really want to have that conversation. But certainly, what we see it's Australia certainly has a problem with alcohol and. Lots of people have an issue with alcohol and it's our most common call. We get, you know, loads of calls through our gambling helplines again, something that's, you know, that's legal. And as people will be aware, you know, incredibly promoted across so many different media. So, you know, we're, we're in some ways saturated with gambling ads and both alcohol and gambling. The industry has done a really good job of, of linking them into so many aspects of everyday life. You know, and so that becomes so normalized and part of our everyday culture. So when we look at alcohol ads and gambling ads, you know, we can see that you know, often it's about, you know, um, associating them with sort of everyday Australians doing everyday things. And, and, and you can see that in terms of the liberalization of of access to both gambling and, and and alcohol. So, you know, it's not that long ago that, you know, the only way you could really get a drink out in public, you know, would, was, you know, this is 20 odd years ago, would be to go to a pub or a club. Now, whatever you go, there's an expectation now that you're offered a glass of alcohol, you know, and, and so it's just become so entrenched in our culture that sometimes people don't realize that, hang on a minute, is it appropriate that we should be able to drink at any sort of point in our life and in any yeah. sort of setting? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do find alcohol is a very complex problem because it's so entrenched in our culture. So how do you tell if someone just loves a drink after work or loves a drink on the weekend? and when it becomes a problem and that goes broader than just alcohol i guess any addictive pattern how do you tell when someone's just passionate about a particular area or thing and when it's becoming an issue most people would have gambled or drank alcohol and you know and a significant proportion of the population will have tried a drug of one description or another 
So, you know, taking, you know, drinking, gambling, taking your drug in some ways, you know, this is sort of and a part of the normal human experience, you know, the reason why sort of our ancestors started um, distilling alcohol, brewing alcohol, was because it changes our mental state. And as humans, you know, we have pretty stressful lives and we're seeking out things that alter our mental state to help us sort of connect, to, to help us relax, to help us cope to help us, you know, fit in and, and, and to socialize with our, our colleagues and community. So, you know, this is, you know, this is part of human culture for millennia. So there's nothing wrong about that. And I think the issue is though, the availability and accessibility and, you know, how much it's socially sanctioned. So drinking in the right setting, using drugs, you know, most of the community, you know, will have taken one drug or another, be it caffeine, nicotine, or, you know, illicit drug, or, you know, prescription medication. So everyone will have taken something. And yeah, all those are really accessible substances, though, aren't they? And it's like, there's a level of um, forgiveness for indulging in accessible legal substances, you know, at least in, in my social experience. It's that accessibility, that ability to have it 24 seven, for it to be socially sanctioned so that it's okay to drink or use at any point. And, you know, they're the things that sort of make uh, consumption, you know, increase and more likely to happen. You know, I think we only need to look at what's happening currently now during COVID-19 to see that, you know, as people have been locked up at home, you know, often struggling, you know, either just working from home, doing childcare from home, or even unfortunately might have lost their jobs. There's not many avenues for enjoyment. And, you know, having a, a glass of wine or a beer or or a bit of a punt, you know, is something that sort of, a, you know, can be seen as an escape and something that we see as being deserving. And, and that, and there's nothing wrong with that. The challenge is, is, you know, as the pandemic goes on and we end up sort of rather than just having the occasional drink or punt or whatever you know it becomes a daily ritual and then it sort of goes from just having sort of a glass of wine with dinner or after dinner to having half a bottle of wine you know to then having almost a full bottle of wine you know so it's the insidious nature of it that I think you know often catches people out and you know just because our bodies are so great at processing drugs. They're so great at processing drugs that when we take a drug every day, and, and people will experience this taking a whole range of medications, that initially we get side effects from medications, but often after a while, our body gets used to it because our body develops adaptive mechanisms, hemostatic mechanisms that actually counterbalance the effects of the drug. And so we don't have those effects. And that's certainly what we see for the, for the drugs that we're all talking about, alcohol, is it drugs, pharmaceutical drugs and gambling, that our body gets used to it. And so to get the same effect, we need to take more. Yeah, right. So when do people start getting into trouble? People are in trouble when rather than taking that drug or substance or having a drink, you know, because, you know, it's a bit of a, um, a reward or a relief, you know, and it, it's when you know, the feeling is that I need to have it, you know, I need to take it. I, you know, I can't go in out without it. It's a struggle not to use it. My sleep's affected. I can't calm down. I can't relax. My head's racing. 
you know, I need to have that drink. I need to have that drug. I need to have a bit of a punt, you know, otherwise I can't relax. I can't calm myself down. And that's that sort of loss of control that the idea that the, the drug in some ways taking over and, and it's prioritizing your choices. That's, a, I suppose, an indication that maybe I might need to just sort of check in and actually monitor how much I am I actually drinking or using or gambling. Um, if I try and cut down a bit, what happens? How does that make me feel? You know, is it a struggle or not? The other things, I suppose, for all of us, it's just about that greater awareness of what are we doing? You know, what are, how are we making choices? What is the impact that's having on us? I guess that awareness is covered and shrouded by all the cultural norms, particularly around alcohol and gambling. I mean, offline, you and I had a chat about the difference between uh, a meth addiction and an alcohol addiction and how the alcohol addiction is sometimes harder to spot. Um, could you maybe talk us through that? Because I just thought that was a really interesting insight you had. And I think this, again, speaks to the issue of the legality and the social acceptance of your choice of drug. Alcohol is so normative, you know, as part of youth culture. Um, fortunately, that's changing a bit now. We know that the younger population is tending to drink later and more likely to drink in moderation. But certainly what, 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 what's very common is people start drinking and drinking heavily, late teens, early 20s. They're drinking throughout their 20s and then in their late 20s. And, you know, to early 30s, they're selling down in terms of their career, in terms of their family life, yeah. in terms of getting married and having kids. And the reality is, is if somebody starts drinking heavily in their late teens, early 20s, you know, often that's embraced. You know, they're often seen as somebody, you know, to go out with because they're always up for a drink. And yeah, uh, particularly in the Australian culture, right? Exactly. In some, in some ways, that's the sort of the persona that, you know, we want to embrace or, you know, champion in some ways, this sort yeah. of larrikin figure. But if, you know, towards the late end of your 20s, you know, you're starting to settle down, mid, mid to late 20s, you know, and the same friend, Ruin, is ringing you up and he's he's saying, you know, you know fancy coming out tonight, you know, to watch a bit of sport, we'll go around the pub and have a few drinks or go out for a meal or come round and watch a movie yeah. and let's crack open, you know, a slab or, you know, people started to ask, you know, what, you know, what's with Rowan? You know, what, how come he's not slowing down? You know, we're all sort of got other responsibilities, but Rowan still mm. wants to go. And I think that's the point that people suddenly say, you know, you know, maybe Rowan's got a bit of a drinking problem or maybe there's something going on for him. Yeah. And really we've had a decade or longer of him engaging in the same behaviors, but it's been sort of hidden because yeah. it's so normative in our culture. And that's why, you know, for people who we see with alcohol problems, they often present to treatment so much later than for other drugs because it's so socially sanctioned and so normative that, it, that, that the problem is hidden for so long. And the problem for, that, for them is, as we know, for any health disorder across the board, earlier intervention leads to so much better outcomes. And often when we're seeing people who present really late, you know, if you're drinking heavily for a decade or more, then that's going to have an impact on your physical health, on your mental health, on your social life, on your social supports, on your finances. And so often we're seeing people with a whole range of other complications in those spaces. And they can, you know, might have burnt bridges. 
that might not have the support networks that they need. And so generally what we find is people who present to us with alcohol problems tend to have a tougher time because they're presenting later than people who present counterintuitively with, for example, an ice problem. So often what we're seeing is people with ice, we're often seeing them present much younger, with much mm. more intact social networks, with much more supports around them, with less complications. And because, you know, people, you know, there's a thing about ice use now and it's not, you know, seen as cool as, much, you know, as, as it was and um, people are seeing it as a dangerous drug, then there's a much bigger push to get, to encourage people to get into treatment earlier. And so paradoxically, you know, what we see in our studies is people with ice use actually have better outcomes than people with alcohol. And that's also because you have a problem with ice, you go and get treatment, you come out, you know, it's very, it's much easier to avoid those social networks where people were using. And so you can actually, in some ways, separate yourself from those networks and create new networks that are non-drug using and more supportive. But if your problem is alcohol, it's very, very hard to come out, have treatment and actually connect with people who aren't drinking or where drinking isn't seen as normative. And, you know, I don't know if anyone's had the experience of choosing not to drink for a cause or a purpose or for a whole range of reasons and then going to some event and somebody saying, you know, do you want to drink? And if, if you know, if, you, if you're not drinking, then there's an enormous amount of peer pressure. You know, what's wrong with you? You know, one drink one's going to hurt. So there's sort of, people tend to get angry if you're not drinking. So it's very hard for people who have a problem or have developed a problem and are trying to get over that. They're surrounded by alcohol advertisements, you know, on every turn, constantly reminded by alcohol. Constantly, it's constantly talked about and every interaction, as I say, involves alcohol. So it's really tough. So, you know, they are so strong. Yeah. One of my favorite authors, Clay Christensen, uh, in his book, How to Measure Your Life, says it's a lot easier to say no 100% of the time than 99% of the time. As hard as what it is saying no all the time, I, I find the really tough point is when you'll say, I'll have one drink but no more because it's such a slippery slope because then you'll bump it to another mate and he'll say, oh, come on, mate, let's go have a shot. Or And then, you know, before you know it, if you, if you stack everything up, it's really hard to, to just, you know, try and find that middle ground and drink moderately in the Australian culture. You're exactly right. And I think um, where we see people trip up is is when when people haven't prepared for a conversation. So that's generally when people slip up. So, you know, the issue is, is if, if, if we plan things well and plan our interactions well, you know, we know there's a wedding coming up, or if we know there's an event coming up, if we know there's a party coming up, you know, it's about being aware of that, aware of what's likely to happen and, you know, starting to prepare in terms of what's your plan, how are you going to respond, what's the right answer for you, you know, be it not drinking or be it, you know, just having a couple of drinks, you know, but having a clear plan, you know, that you can follow and thinking about the different scenarios. And generally when people do that, when they plan and, and you know, and be able to work through those different sort of contingencies, then generally we see a good outcome. The danger is when we see people who, you know, have been going well, something comes up, they don't really think about it. You know, they just assume I've been going a while, it will be okay. And then they end up at that party or at that wedding. And not unsurprisingly, 
they're making decisions on the fly that actually then take them sort of in a, down a path that they may later sort of be frustrated with or regret. So it's like every aspect of our life. You know, we have this fantasy, I think, in the modern world where we like to think life should be spontaneous. We shouldn't have to think about anything. Life should just happen. But I suppose, you know, what we see in our line of work, you know, my background's also, you know, in mental health. I'm a psychiatrist by background. And, you know, where people get into trouble is is this notion that, you know, this 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 fantasy that um, being free not to make any choices actually makes you happy. Because what we know is that structure, planning, being clear around your goals and your values is really critical to your mental health. And, um, and so it is that notion of planning and being organized that's so important for us all. Yeah. I want to go back to Turning Point. So Turning Point do um, support for people who suffer from addictions. You provide research and a lot of insight into addiction patterns. And then you also have a, a advocacy and a, a lobby group where you're basically a voice um, but then you also, you've got this other cool project at the moment. You're filming a documentary with SBS. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, look, this is this is really exciting for us. Um, I mean, one of the things is, is that um, we know that addiction is one of the most stigmatized health conditions. It's really completely mis- misunderstood by the population. And I think part of that is because, you know, it involves an illegal activity. So there's this sort of issue of... Um, you know, the illegality and by definition, who takes drugs, you know, there must be, you know, sort of wrong with people who take drugs. And we get into this sort of very binary discussion of, of drug use. And then we have these other things, alcohol and gambling, which sort of are so heavily promoted that the people who are getting in harm's way and somehow are letting us all down. And so we should be angry and frustrated with them. So, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what addiction is. The idea that people who become addicted essentially just party too hard and they just, you know, they have no self-control. So there's there's no real sympathy or understanding or empathy for people with addiction. And really getting involved in this documentary was really an opportunity for us to help change the conversation about addiction. So what, what we were able to do is work with SBS to create a treatment program and to work with 10 extraordinary Australians who are incredibly brave to come forward to seek treatment and to be able to have that documented on film. Yeah, wow, I, I can't wait to see that. And putting your life and struggles out into the public space with the intent of helping someone, it's a big deal, right? Like it's a brave thing to do. Uh, and I'm just thinking that these are real people, they're not actors, they're real people struggling with addictions. And it's just such an amazing opportunity getting an insight into um, their life and their struggle. But what are you trying to achieve with this documentary? Like, what are you trying to trying to do with it? The opportunity is, is, is to use that extraordinary opportunity to humanize what addiction is, to understand what it is for people struggling with addiction, what it actually looks like, what its impact is on individuals and families and how, you know, in some ways it, you know, it's, it counters, you know, the stereotypes that we have around what addiction is. The sort of this idea of the sort of drunk on the park bench with a sort of a, a 
paper bag or some person in an alley with a needle in their arm, you know. So, the, you know, we know that one in five Australians will suffer with an alcohol, drug or gambling issue at some point in their lives. You know, we know that most families will know somebody who's um, struggled with addiction, be it in their direct family, a loved one or sort of a close friend or colleague. So it, it's sort of um, an everyday important health issue and yet we don't talk about it you know it's it's one of our one of australia's sort of silent epidemics that we don't want to talk about and so what this opportunity is with the documentary was to really and you know so thankful for sbs to have a a platform to actually raise that conversation and to really start a, a community discussion and, and one of the things that we're doing around the documentary is we're actually launching a campaign called Rethink Addiction, rethinkaddiction.org.au, where we're being able to bring together a consortium of you know, health and other organizations who are very passionate around seeing a change around addiction and really encouraging the community to you know, have a conversation, to have an honest conversation around what is addiction. Let's rethink how we conceptualize it. Let's rethink how we approach it. Let's rethink how we should respond. And so we're very excited to have that opportunity to engage the Australian community to have a think about what addiction means for them, what their experience of addiction is. So we have a platform to be able to have people share their stories and experiences because we know this is something that people don't talk about, but so many people experience. And to really advocate for, you know, a national priority around addiction and, and, and a greater investment in providing treatment and services that that we know are of you know that are so much so needed and 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 you know the, we have the opportunity to invest in do you have the airing date handy there the documentary is airing on uh, november the 10th uh, on sbs at 8 30 and it's going to go one hour episodes four episodes over four weeks so a really great opportunity in some ways, for us to have that ongoing conversation over that four weeks. Uh, now, I don't want to steal your thunder. You know, the, the documentary is probably going to tell us and show us this in detail, but you talked about different therapies and treatment processes. Uh, can you dig into what is available? What will happen if I have um, an addiction and I call your helpline or I reach out to, to my local psychologist or psychiatrist to get help? What What are they going to put me on? Are they going to put me on some 12-step plan, like what's going to happen in Australia? What's the leading research saying? What actually works? So I, I think that's a really important question because I, I, I think if you talk to most people in the community, and this is what research says, because we don't see any of those um, examples of hope and you know successful treatment, because all we see in the media is bad news stories around addiction, you know, and, and and it's presented in a way that is so negative and so nihilistic that people don't have hope that treatment works. So the, the idea generally in the community is treatment doesn't work, that once an addict, always an addict, you know, that, that, that people are on this negative path. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, we have fantastic treatments for addiction. Um, we have so many great services out there for people struggling um, with alcohol, drug, or gambling problems, and the the challenge has been is that we know often there's a almost you know a 20 year delay in help seeking from when people develop a problem to they seek help because of a whole range of barriers. So f- so for us, you know, the first step is 
you know, helping people to acknowledge that, you know, they have got a, a problem and they are struggling to really congratulate them for coming forward because it is such a, a huge step and there's so much shame and stigma associated with an alcohol, drug or gambling problem. Huge amount of shame and stigma. So to congratulate people, to support people, to understand what people want. I mean, some people just want to be able to cut down and control their use. Some people want to stop altogether. So it's important for us not to prejudge that. It's important to hear what people want and to think about you know, how we can help. And, and I think the thing that people don't really understand is that often addiction is a solution to a problem. You know, often many people we see, you know, have started drinking or using drugs or gambling to deal with something else in their life. It could be some trauma in their life. It could be some mental health issue that's unresolved. It could be some conflict, it could be some family breakdown or relationship breakdown or something difficult that happened at work. So people, something can happen that can cause people some, you know, real discomfort, some, you know, some significant psychological pain. And they self-medicate. And, and they self-medicate. These drugs, alcohol, drugs, gambling, the fantastic yeah. emotional analgesics. Fantastic, mm. you know, and they switch off your emotions, you know, for a short period of time. And so in the short term, you know, they're a great solution. You know, you know, if we look back 200 years, you know, when people were early days of surgery, you know, people would be giving alcohol to sort of numb their pain while they were before the days of anesthesia. So we've known for millennia that these substances are good for altering mental states and, and for relieving pain, both physical and emotional. So they're a great short-term solution. The problem is, is if we actually don't get help for that underlying problem, and we continue to rely on alcohol, drugs, or gambling for as the coping strategy, then unfortunately what happens is not only do we have the original problem, but now our body's got so used to taking these substances that actually we've developed an addiction to these substances and that, or a problem, and that's created its own problems that we need to seek help for. So for us, it's about helping people to understand what's led them on this path, what are the issues underlying this that we also need to address? Because often when I see people, I, I'm not expecting them to be able to cut down or stop their drinking immediately if their drinking is actually the key coping strategy for something else in their life that's causing them a lot of pain. Mm. So, you know, it's, for us, it's about understanding what is driving that. How do we help you get alternatives coping strategies to help you deal with this other issue to allow you to look at how we reduce and or get control of your drinking or drug use in a way that is not so harmful or damaging to you that's the, that's the key approach that we take could you give us some specific strategies you use the key thing is about developing a relationship with somebody so getting to know somebody giving them some, you know, you know, in the short term, it's giving them some strategies around harm reduction. So how do they, you know, how do they make sure what they do, they can continue in a way that minimizes the harm they're causing to themselves or those around them. So some strategies around that. We get people to monitor and take notice of how much they're drinking or using or gambling, because the greater awareness that we have about what we're doing, the more that gives us you know, that ability to intervene. If we don't know, if we're mindless in how we are drinking or using or gambling, then it's very difficult for us to intervene. So understanding when we're doing it, how much we're doing it, how we're doing it, and 
what what are the potential triggers or you know so that allows us to think about well what can we do you know to try and sort of limit that use and reduce that use that might be about reducing the amount we drink it might be delaying the time to that first drink it might be you know measuring out the quantity of how much we drink it might be distracting ourselves with other activities so again really understanding what's happening and um, how we can get better control over that use and then you know making sure we have the right supports around us and we're dealing with any any underlying trauma mental health or other issues so they're sort of the principles in general around how we would approach it and calling a helpline is the first step it's about understanding there's a community out there of support there's forums out there that you can share and, and get that collective wisdom from others. There's lots of groups out there, support groups that are fantastic because we know that one of the issues with alcohol, drugs and gambling or addiction more broadly is about feeling disconnected. You know, often people feel so much shame that they're keeping it to themselves. They don't even want to admit it to themselves or to others. And so they're alone and isolated. And we know that if you're alone and isolated, you know, it's a terrible space to be and it's very difficult to move forward. So that connection is so important, you know, and that's where when often people ask me, you know, what should I do if I know a friend or colleague is struggling? I think reaching out, letting them know that you're there, letting them know that you're concerned about them as a person, you know, rather than drawing attention to the behavior, you know, we're focusing on them as, as, as the individual so that, you're really, you know, you're worried about the impact the drinking is having on them and, and, and you care for them and, and you're there, always there to be a support, to be able to have a chat and, and to, in some ways, helping them to seek support if they need. And, and often people um, find it very difficult to make that first phone call for support. So even, you know, offering to be there, to make that call with them or to go to the GP with them or... I think people often underestimate how how powerful these simple gestures can be. It might seem something that's very small, but somebody who's struggling is feeling not only judged by society, but are more likely to be judging themselves in a really harsh way. Mm. Um, having somebody there to sort of reach out and support and offer that practical help, but you know, can can be so invaluable. Professor Dan, do you drink? Yeah, look, I certainly do drink, and as most Australians do, the important thing here is in all the choices that we make, it's important to sit back and reflect on our engagement, you know, with these behaviours. So I choose to drink, but I also am very mindful about how much I drink. I, I certainly don't drink to intoxication. I, I certainly like a couple of drinks, two, three, four times a week. But certainly, I'm very mindful about how I engage with alcohol and the role it has and what function it has for me. And for me, I feel like I've got a good relationship with alcohol. You know, it, it plays a you know, helpful role in terms of being a, a moment of enjoyment in my life. But it certainly isn't something that I rely on. It isn't something that I turn to every day. It certainly isn't something that is a key coping strategy for me. So I'm happy with my relationship, but I think it's important that everyone takes the time to step back and reflect on what their relationship with alcohol is. Is it what they intend it to be? And in that context, I think things like FebFast, Sober October, Dry July, yeah. those periods of taking times off, I think are often very 
useful because often life is so busy. We're just sort of into this routine. We're sort of just running moment to moment, moment to moment without really reflecting. Yeah. And I think those sort of periods where you're saying, well, actually, look, I'm, I'm going to do Feb Fast or Dry July or, you know, I'm going to take some time off. I'm going to see sort of how I feel without alcohol in my life for a period mm. of time. Which is tough for a lot of people, right? Yeah, really tough, really tough for some people. But, it, you know, this is re- what's really important for all of us, you know, not taking all the things we do for granted and not stepping back and reflecting and asking ourselves, is this something that's aligned with our values and goals? Is this something yeah. that I can, um, you know, is this something that I have to rely on? Um, so being able to take that step back and reflect, I think it's really important. But but your comment on alcohol there is not unique to just alcohol. You could say that for every part of your life. Like, is this relationship healthy for me? You know, is this food that I'm eating every day healthy for me? It's probably just a good model for life in general. And alcohol is just one one component of that, right? Like, you really nailed it there, Ruin. I think that's exactly it. It's it's about understanding the choices we make, understanding the relationships we have. And, you know, and taking that, taking that moment to step back and reflect. Yeah. Um, because for many of us, that's really tough because we, are, we do lead these incredibly busy lives where there's so many things to think about, so many things to respond to and making the time to step back and reflect and think about our relationships with all these things is, is, is so important. Okay. We're going to stop it there for the end of part one of our conversation. So the services that Professor Dan and his team at Turning Point offer and or support are national online and telephone services, which are free and available 24-7. Professor Dan did mention that 20 to 25% of the people who reach out to the call lines and online platforms are actually friends and family of someone struggling with addictions. So these services really are for everyone. We'll include these details in the show notes, but the two online services offered are for gambling and counselling. Their web addresses are gamblinghelponline.org.au and counsellingonline.org.au. The phone lines are the National Alcohol and Drug Line, which is 1-800-250-015, and the National Gambling Helpline, which is 1-800-858-858. Professor Dan and the team at Turning Point are also involved in a new public campaign called Rethink Addiction to educate and advocate for the need to change Australia's attitude and approach to addiction. They formed an online petition and a forum to share your or read others' stories around addiction. Check it out at rethinkaddiction.org.au. Coming up next, we'll speak about social media addiction specifically in part two. Stay tuned. 